Welcome to this podcast on semi-structured interviewing in the Talking About Methods series. We are very fortunate to have Linda Mulcahy as our expert today. Linda Mulcahy is the Professor of Sociolegal Studies and the Director of the Centre for Sociolegal Studies in the Law Faculty at the University of Oxford. She has degrees in law, legal theory, sociology and art history, and her work has a strong interdisciplinary flavour. Linda has previously held posts at the LSE, Birkbeck, the Law Commission and Bristol University. She has undertaken a number of empirical studies of disputes between business people in the car distribution industry, divorcing couples, doctors and patients and neighbours on council estates. Her work has been funded by a range of bodies, including the Economic and Social Research Council, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Nuffield Foundation, the Department of Health, the NHS Executive, the Leverhulme Trust and the Lotteries Board. Linda's publications span a number of different topics, including the socio-legal dynamics of disputes, the design of law courts, feminist and relational perspectives on contract law, visual representations of law and legal methodology. Her most recent book, The Democratic Courthouse, authored with Emma Rowden, was published in November 2019. Linda served as an editor of the International Journal of Social and Legal Studies for 10 years and is currently a member of the advisory board of the Journal of Law and Society. She is a former chair of the UK Socio-Legal Studies Association and is currently serving as a trustee of the US Law and Society Association. Linda, it's a real pleasure to be joined by you today for this episode of Talking About Methods. Thank you so much. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us um, about the sort of socio-legal research you do. Sure. Um, Basically, I've spent 30 years just rummaging around in the legal system. And what I'm really interested in is how people experience the legal system, what I would call the phenomenology of legal system. So I've interviewed people about their experiences of going to court. I've done a lot of participant observation in courts and tribunals. I've talked to people about mediation processes. Um, And about 15 years ago, my interest turned to the architecture of law courts. And I was particularly interested in negotiations uh, between government and architects and users of courts about what the architecture should represent and the sort of values that got prioritised in those discussions. And I suppose what the placing of people in the courtroom tells us about the respect that they're afforded in the legal system. Um, So that was another chunk of work. And then I've taken another turn recently. I'm working on two new projects. One of them is looking at people's experience in video hearings, which will be using focus groups and surveys. And the other one's a history of radical lawyering, which is an oral history and archival project. Yeah. So I'm old enough for there to be quite a lot. Sorry, that's such a long response. No, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. So one of the methods that you've used a lot in your research is semi-structured interviews. And I wondered what made that method suitable for the projects in which you've used it. Thanks. Yeah, um, semi-structured interviews are a really funny beast. And I suppose I wanted to start by just saying that people often say they do semi-structured interviews. Um, It's just one of those things that, that people sort of patter out. And I think one of the things that we're really bad at is explaining what we mean by semi-structured because there's a really big spectrum there between interviews that are completely structured. So, for instance, if you were doing a face-to-face survey in the street and asking people questions that you probably had some pre-codes to, and then 
the completely unstructured interview, if there is any such thing, because I think we always structure even by our facial expressions or the, the nudges or the initial question that we ask. There's a, if semi-structured is the bit in between, that's a really enormous span of, of different types of interviews. Um, so for me, the extent to which you structure your interviews in advance should depend on a couple of things. The first is what research has been done before. What do we know and if lots of research has been done, we might ask some very specific questions, which would mean you might frame more structured questions. Um, but I think the second issue that you need to think about, um, which for me is most important, is who do you think the expert in the interview is? And I think that's quite an important ethical, um, epistemological, methodological question, because if I like to think that in most of my research, the expert is the interviewee. And if they're the expert, then my job as an interviewer is to listen to them and to be attentive to the way that they choose to structure their argument and the things that they choose to talk about. So I don't like it when I hear people say that their interviewees went off on a tangent, because I like to think there isn't such a thing as a tangent. There's just a different agenda to the one that I thought people might have. And their tangents are often some of the most interesting things I think you find in your research. So um, I've used semi-structured interviews in quite a few projects. I suppose the one that I used it most in um, was were sort of tubulated projects in which I did 50 interviews with doctors against whom a medical negligence action had been bought. And then I also did over 100 interviews, uh, very in-depth qualitative interviews uh, with victims of medical mistakes. Um, and, you know, that took up quite a lot of my my early career. And I suppose I was using semi-structured interviews in that situation because there was research out there on how patients felt about bringing a medical negligence action and how doctors reacted to being held to account in that way. But a lot of it was survey-based. Um, and I think there were limitations to what the surveys could tell us. I think they could give us a whole range of information. But what I really wanted to do was a much more in-depth study. I wanted to talk to people about the meanings that they gave to experiences and actually how their, their story about the events and their stories about what had happened changed over time. So a survey will just, unless you do a whole series of surveys, a survey will just capture one moment in time. And I think what's so interesting about what I would call disputing narratives is that they are very mercurial and they change. And as people get more information, as they get more context or they get older or they get fed up of the story, uh, their accounts and the way that they talk about their experiences changes quite significantly. And that was something that I felt I could only capture in person, uh, giving them some autonomy over the structure of the interview and the story that they wanted to tell. So semi-structured was was the perfect method I think for those studies. Thank you so much that's really really interesting and I love this idea of disputing narratives that, that you've um, raised there. I wondered um, so you you sort of touched on it but whether you could tell us what the project design involved when you were planning to do interviews and what was um, important for you to do and organize before you went into the field? Yeah, I'm not sure I have touched upon it much, actually, because there's an awful lot um, of project design to do. Well, because I was interviewing um, doctors and patients and patients in this context were considered to be vulnerable 
people um, and that some of the experiences that they had 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 been quite traumatic. So I was talking to women and men who had been rendered infertile, um, you know, people who had had lost relatives that were very close to them. Um, I had to go through quite a strict ethics application. And in the one of the studies that took 18 months to get through the ethics committee in one, um, local, one health authority that I was working with. Um, so I also had to think, you know, obviously the, the ethics approval process was a really important one. Um, not because it's a bureaucratic process that you need to get through, but because it makes you think quite hard about your responsibilities to people and how you ensure that they are giving full consent to what may be a very difficult and emotional experience for them. Um, so I think interviewing brought with it quite a big responsibility in terms of the type of people that I was interviewing. Um, and I felt that I also needed to think about my well-being um, because you take these stories away. And there are some stories that people told me in those interviews that I have never, ever repeated to anyone else because they are so horrific that I would not feel it was appropriate to burden anybody else with the knowledge of things that happened to people's bodies. So it, I, I think it's important to, to think about your well-being as a researcher as well and how many interviews you want to schedule in a week. And that's really important because if you're planning, that will have an impact on how many interviews you can do or how long it will take um, to do the interviews. Um, I obviously had to make myself really familiar with the work that had already been done in the field. And that helped me to put together a series of questions for my semi-structured, I call it an aid memoir, other people have other names for them. Um, I think over time, I've realized that probably no more than about 10 big topics are appropriate for a one and a half hour interview, which would be the shortest interview that I would probably do. Um, and then, you know, you want to ask follow up questions that just arise naturally if you're adopting a conversational style, which is what we mainly aspire to in semi-structured interviews, that people don't know you've got this list of questions or they're, they're not aware of it being a sheet that of questions that has to be asked. It's much, much more conversational. So I think you have to think about what those topics are. And one of the things I make my PhD students do, as Ellie will know, is I make them justify why they ask every question by reference to the gap in the literature. Um, because I think that that really tightens up our thinking about what, what the purpose of those, those interviews are. I think you've got to be a little bit flexible as well, but I think that's quite, quite a good way of, of looking at it. Something else that I have learned over time is you've got to think about where you'll be doing the interview. So if you're doing an interview with a professional person, it may well be you'll be sitting at a desk um, or over a table, and that means you can lean on something. If you're going into people's homes, as I have done for an awful lot of my interviews, you need to have the good old clipboard or something to actually rest that sheet on. Um, and one of the advantages of only have, you know, giving yourself 10 key issues that you want to bring up with people is that you can have that on one sheet of paper because you really don't want to be flapping around with paper um, in the middle of interviews because that can disrupt people. Um, thinking about what you're going to record it on. I know in another interview in this series, this podcast series, Anna Bryson talks about the need to have two two recording devices because of things that have had have happened to her in the past. Um, but most importantly, I think you need to pilot the interviews that you're going to do. And I think you make an awful lot of mistakes during the pilot phase and you realise that certain questions don't work, people don't understand a particular term. And then you should go back and 
redraft um, and, and often make it a little bit more, more informal in style so that it's easier um, to deliver. So I think that's really important. And then, of course, there are consent forms to be drafted, uh, letters and emails to be drafted um, that you probably want to run past other people um, and interviews to be arranged. One of the projects that I'm doing at the moment with, in the focus groups involves disadvantaged groups of people. We're particularly interested in going out to disadvantaged communities. And that has been quite challenging in thinking about the wording of the uh, letters that we're sending out to people or the messages that we're sending out to them, um, because we don't want to put them in a position where they may not understand the vocabulary that we're using. So I think those letters, emails, whatever, always have to be customised as well. So quite a lot of, of work, I think, to be put into project design. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so what was your experience of using semi-structured interviews? Um, what insights do you think it added to the project that would not have been possible if you'd used other methods? Well, I think this goes back to the question of who's the expert. Um, and if one of the reasons that you're using semi-structured interviews is that you want to give some autonomy to your interviewee to shape the sorts of issues that are on the table or the way in which they formulate their narrative or the, or, or, or the things that they mention. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about semi-structured interviews then is that you are inevitably involved in co-production of data. Um, so I think that's something that's quite important. Um, and as I've said before, sometimes I think when you, especially you're a, an early career uh, socio-legal research or you're a little bit nervous about interviews you do try and impose your structure on the interview because you think you've got to get through that and all the interviews have got to be exactly the same and actually it's probably impossible for every interview to be the same I did one yesterday and I could just not control the interviewee <laughs> just decided in the end to sort of uh, let it go but I, I think that's quite important people often raise things that you haven't thought of in preparing your aid memoir and actually those are often really important things because they're seeing the world from a different perspective. And if you listen, that may then be an issue that you bring up in the next interview, that you've, you've got things to learn by the, the agenda that people set. Um, I think you need to be prepared for interviews to take much longer than you anticipated. So when I was doing the interviews with victims of medical accidents, probably about a third of my interviews were five hours or longer. And I had not anticipated that. I thought I was going in for one and a half semi-structured, one and a half hour semi-structured interviews. And I very quickly realised that when people are bearing quite intimate details of their life to you and going through quite painful experiences that, that you can't leave them. So you just have to sit there. I think you just have to wait until they are ready. And then I think you need to take some responsibility to bringing them up again. You know, having a more general chat about something more positive, some lovely photos they've got in there room or some flowers or a nice piece of furniture, whatever it is, I'm very good at small talk because I think you need to just bring them back to a slightly safer space. Um, the other thing that I think is quite important is that people often relax when they think the formal part of the interview is over and you need to be prepared for that because they will often give you really useful data <laughs> after you've finished ask, answering your questions. So you might want to think about also recording that. Thank you so much. And um, so the next question is whether you encountered any problems in the field. Yeah, I think there are a number of problems that I've encountered in the field. I suppose the first one I would mention is emotional exhaustion. 
and I've already alluded to that, uh, it was quite hard to constantly be in the field listening to quite sad and tragic stories um, about people. And that wasn't just from the perspective of victims. Um, I, the interviews that I did with doctors were much more emotionally draining than I thought they would be. And that's partly because the doctors often hadn't spoken to very many people about what had happened. And I was quite surprised by that, about how few people they had confided in. And when I first did that research, the regional medical officer, who was the senior officer in regional health authorities, as they were then, said to me, you'll never get any doctors to talk to you about this sort of thing. Doctors don't have time and they're not particularly interested in qualitative research. And I did a survey of all the hospital consultants in the region. It's 748 consultants. And I asked at the end of the survey whether any of them would be interested in talking to me. And I got 365 yes responses. So that was the first finding that I could re report to the senior medical officer or the regional medical officer and say, actually, there are a lot of doctors out there that want to speak to me. And interviews with them were also very long at times. And they would bring a lot of information with them. And, you know, there were, I think they felt that they hadn't really had the opportunity to really talk to somebody about it. They hadn't gone to therapy or counselling or occupational health. So they, it can be emotionally exhausting. I mean, something, something that's quite interesting about that is in the final project I did for the Department of Health, they actually offered me counselling as part of the research grant. And they costed in. They said, we noticed you haven't put anything for counselling for yourself. Um, we'd like to put that into the grant for you. It was such a responsible thing for a funding body to do. Um, and I said, I, do, I don't think I need counselling. I've been doing this for years. I'm fine. And actually, the fact that they offered me that made me really think that actually I probably did need some counselling. And I, I didn't ever get it, but it is what made me move out of the area because I thought I need to move on. And that's why I moved on to the architecture of law courts, thinking I'd be looking at beautiful buildings all the time. It'd be much more uplifting. Of course, it wasn't. Um, I think something else that I would say has been a problem in the field. Early on in my career, I started interviewing when I was about 27. And I was doing quite a lot of professional interviews with senior executives in the car distribution industry. And I think they looked at me and they thought, young woman, she knows nothing about cars. She's got no idea how the car distribution industry works. And so they'd give me a line, you know, they'd just tell me a story that was basically a PR story for their company. And it just, I'm easily angered. So it just got me annoyed. So I thought, how do I deal with this? So I then decided that for the two years of the project, I would read all the magazines in the car distribution industry, all the trade rags. And my goodness, did I know an awful lot about spare parts in Unipart and takeovers. Um, but I still didn't necessarily put that on the table when I went in there. But if I felt they were giving me a line, I would just drop in a piece of information that demonstrated them to, that I knew that wasn't the case and that it was much more complex than that. And so that was quite interesting. Um, I've also had people interviewing me before they allow me to interview them. It happened a lot with doctors. They wanted to know where I'd got my degree um, they didn't ask for the class, but they sort of wanted to know what I'd done since. And, and I think that was about status. Um, you know, they I, I don't know what was going on there, but it shocked me. And interestingly, I thought that was something about me being young. But I did an interview yesterday with um, a radical lawyer from a law centre who interviewed me before I could interview him. He wanted to know what my politics were. 
uh, and we went into a lot of depth about shades of left-wing politics and which particular type of left-wing politics we were talking about. And he wanted to know about my motivations. He wanted to know about my family background, what my background was, how, how you know, what connection I had with poverty and how I could understand how people lived in poverty. And it was it was quite shocking for me. You know, I'm almost 60. I didn't expect that people would be doing that to me anymore. So it, it just tells you that these things keep on um, cropping up. I suppose the final thing that I would say that I think was a problem is, is probably an ongoing problem, ethical issue in the field, is I do a lot of work with at the moment with people that I think are really good people. I think they make uh, communities better healthier democratic communities and working uh, with radical lawyers as I as I've mentioned and I've previously in the past worked with community mediators and these are people that don't get paid much money and you know they they improve access to justice for thousands of people and I think it's difficult sometimes thinking about how you're going to tell their story because as academics we tend to critique what people do and then you're suddenly in a situation with very good people doing good things on a daily basis, doing much more good in the world than I am. And I feel a little bit reticent to be overly critical. So I'm, I'm much more careful. I think that's quite a dilemma. I think you found that as well, Ellie, because you've been doing research with uh, people who work um, in supporting um, people that have been raped. So I think that's also not, perhaps it's not a problem. It's just a bit of a dilemma, isn't it, in the field? Yeah, thank you so much, Linda. That's that's so insightful. I wondered if I could sort of ask a question, um, and I think this sort of draws upon um, what we've we've had previous conversations about it. But something that you were kind of alluding to um, when you were talking about people interviewing you at the start of interviews, and I wondered how you kind of approach how much you tell interviewees about yourself when you're doing interviews. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think it differs according to the project. Um, I don't necessarily want to go in there and tell every people everything about myself because that might, you know, shade what they want to tell me and I want them to sort of just think of me as a little bit of an empty vessel. But then there's no such thing as an empty vessel and we know, we know that's feminist methodologies. So sometimes I think it can be highly relevant what you tell them. So when I did the interviews with doctors, the reason I'd become interested in medical negligence in the first place was that my uncle was wrongly diagnosed and he died about a year after that misdiagnosis. Um, and I was very close to him. And before he died, he asked me to help him make a complaint to the, to the health authority. He didn't want to bring a claim, but he did want to make his experiences known to people. Um, and I felt that when I went to talk to doctors about mistakes they had made, that it was important to tell them that that was my motivation for coming into the field, that I understood from a patient's perspective what harm could be caused as a result of that. Now, in that situation, I think it was really justified and important to put that on the table because I think what I'm putting on the table is my bias. Now, Edwin Cameron um, in the South African Constitutional Court always said that he was very happy to be out as gay because then litigants who came before him knew what his, could guess what his views would be on certain situations. And if they wanted to challenge him as having a bias, they could do. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's about transparency. 
Um, so that's very far away from the sort of scientific model of interviewers as objective and as impartial and not bringing things with them. The, the circumstance I gave you yesterday where a radical lawyer was questioning me, me about my credentials, I think it was relevant to tell him then that I had, I used to work somewhere called the Bethnal Green Right Shop, that I've often done a lot of pro bono work with NGOs, because I think he saw me as somebody that could be trusted to tell a, to, to give a fair account of his story. And I don't think in that situation that he would have allowed me to interview him because he actually, there was a mistake in communication. There was somebody else that we had got in, we got in touch through somebody else. There'd been a mistake in the way that they described our project. And he thought that it was a very different sort of top-down project. And it was very bottom-up. I'm very interested in the people that fueled the movement. And I don't think he would have given me the information if I hadn't told him what I did about myself and my family, the fact that my father was a shop steward for a while, was quite significant to him, for instance. Um, but so I think it changes with every with every project, really. Um, of course, what I will do in both those instances, I will always make it clear what happened in the methods section, um, because I think it's important for my readers to know that I had given that information and that might colour what people told me. Yeah, thank you so much. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how you set up um, about analysing the data once you've produced it. Yeah, that's a really good question, um, Ellie, because I think an awful lot of people, when I, I when I review work, an awful lot of people tell you about what they're going to do to collect the data, and they very rarely tell you about how they're going to analyse it. So I think analysis raises all sorts of of really important questions, methodological questions as well. So for me, if I'm doing semi-structured or fairly unstructured interviews, in a way, I you know you have to think in advance about the dangers of doing that because you will be asking some people the same questions or they will have similar sorts of responses, but there'll be an awful lot of variety. That's what you're opening yourself up to when you do semi-structured interviews. If you do something that's structured, like a survey, You've only got a limited number of responses that people can give unless you have sort of write-in boxes, but you pre-code. So in, a, in effect, you've sort of done your analytical frame when you're drafting the survey and collecting the data. But it's, it's very different, I think, when you've got qualitative research where you need to do inductive analysis. So I would describe my method as inductive. I have sometimes used grounded theory um, where it's been appropriate. My approach draws very heavily on grounded theory which I think if done properly, and if people read their grounded theory key text properly, because again, it's something people bandy around when they haven't always gone into the literature. I think it has some real, it's a really rigorous process that holds us accountable to our data. So I don't think we're aspiring to objectivity. I think we're aspiring to rigor in quality research. And for me, grounded theory in its various forms, there are lots of different types of grounded theory. I'm sort of follow the sort of Sharma's um, book and her approach, um, I think it can be really valuable in, in making me rethink my own assumptions. Um, I suppose the first thing is to get your interviews transcribed. When I was younger, I transcribed all my own interviews and I make my PhD students do that as well because I think actually one of the best databases, one of the best software programs you will ever get is behind between your ears. It's your brain and you carry your data set around and I could be cycling into work or taking the dog out for a walk and suddenly I'll have two, two little bits of data will collect in my head and I'll suddenly see 
a connection which is really valuable. So I think when you transcribe your interviews, you listen to yourself as an interviewer and you're a little bit more critical and a little bit more distance about your own performance and the impact that a particular phrasing may have had on the data that you've got. So I think it's a good process. You can't listen to yourself when you're doing the interview, when you're when you're speaking. Um, so I would read my transcripts through in their entirety. I think that's really important to read the interview transcript as a whole. I would then start to establish a coding framework. I've, I've been doing this this week, having read through, highlighting things, underlining things. What, what are the key themes that are emerging? Are there particular words that people use? Are there particular things that they're very keen to talk about? Is there a particular way that they're structuring uh, what are they not saying, which is always a hard one to look for what isn't there. Um, and I would generally come up with a mixture of sort of sub-themes and key themes. So, so for instance, I'll give you an example. I, I began a coding framework this week where I had asked people whether they thought there were particular types of litigants that it wasn't suitable to use video hearings with them. And a lot of people um, gave answers to that. And some people said as one category, people who are disabled. So that became a main code. But there were others that said people who are disabled because they have partial sight or people who are disabled because they have poor hearing or people who have special educational needs. Those become subcategories of disabled. But it took me quite a while to work out the, the relationship between those and that these this was turning up regularly enough as a theme that it was deserving of of a, a main code and then subcategories. So I think you, you work it up from the bottom. I then try and collect representative um, quotations as I go. Some, something that grounded theory is really good at is identifying outliers. So um, Boucher and Strauss, um, who were some of the early, most inf influential authors in um, grounded theory would say, go back and look for the opposite. You've got your codes, now go back and look for the opposite. And I, I continue to find that really useful. I test my coding framework out. I'd probably test it out in about 50, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, about 10 interviews. Um, and then I would refine the coding framework. And then I'd use it on some more. And then I'd probably refine it again. It's a very iterative process, inductive um, analysis. I would, of course, use a software program these days, something something like Nudist, to help you organise all that material. But Nudist doesn't do the thinking for you. I know that there is there's probably a debate out there about AI, and um, it's something that I've I've written on. I just don't trust machines yet to be able to capture the nuance um, that I think I'm still able to do as a human being. Um, so, and then when I've done all that, I'd go back and reread the complete transcript again, because I think there's a danger that we lose nuanced themes by splitting up text into tiny chunks, which is what software programs often require us to do. So I would, I would read again from the beginning. So it's a long process. You have, to, you have to love inductive analysis to do it because it's really time consuming. Yeah, thank you so much. And I was wondering if you could tell our audience if there's anything you'd do differently um, if you use the method of semi-structured interviews again in a similar project in the future. Um, I guess I've, I've partly given you the answer to this question in that I would probably be a bit more mindful of my own well-being where the interviews involved quite um, traumatic circumstances. Um, I think I'd 
just be kinder to myself in terms of the number of interviews that I do in quick succession. You know, sometimes we think, oh, we're entering the data collection phase. I've got to collect as much data as I can, as quickly as I can. And I think just to spread it out a little bit, perhaps be writing a chapter or something else, an introductory chapter or a methodology chapter alongside data collections that you're not only doing data collection because it can become quite um, exhausting. I think other than that, all my mistakes are part of my apprenticeship my ongoing apprenticeship. I think you learn from everyone. So you wouldn't want to not make mistakes. Yeah, that's wonderful. And Linda, you've recommended three texts for people interested in semi-structured interviews to read. I wondered if you could walk us through your choices. Yeah, I thought very hard about my choices. I could have given a couple of standard textbooks on interviewing um, like David Silverman, which continues to be a really, really great textbook on qualitative um, data analysis. But I've gone for something, I think I've gone for a couple of pieces, certainly that are a little bit more controversial, because I think for sociolegal scholars, there's already quite a lot out there on interviewing. Uh, one of my f absolute favourite pieces, um, because it talks about messiness, is Susan Silby's piece in Halliday, Simon Halliday's and Schmidt's book on conducting law and society research. And Susan, who is, is one, you know, I think one of the absolute top scholars of her generation, just talks about all the mistakes she made. And I just love that. I think somebody that we all admire so much to just talk about what they learned from other people when doing interviews is, is a very humbling experience. And I, I really like her approach. Um, there's also a second piece by Hendrik Hartog, um, on romancing the quotation. And this, this is great fun to read. It's really easy to read. And it's basically an argument between an anthropologist and his partner about how responsible he has been, has been in quotations in his book. And there's, there's a little bit of, I'm not going to spoil the story for everybody, um, but he basically raises a number of controversies about the ways that we manipulate our data. Uh, that's how I read it um, when we're doing social science by how we select quotations. Um, and the third piece, which I think is a piece you know, um, Ellie, is by Cunningham, the lawyer as translator, representation as text. Now, this isn't actually about social science interviewing. It's about a professor who ran a clinic in a law school and how he interviewed one of the clients and how he got it wrong, how he got it badly wrong and the way in which he... He talked, but he didn't listen. And again, I think it's got fantastic uh, advice to all of us who are going into the field. So there's a couple of those pieces I've been teaching to for years and they're, they're real favourites for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Linda, I, I know that you know that those, those pieces have definitely influenced me and I still remember <laughs> reading them for the first time and the text that I think you can revisit again and again and always find something new. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Talking About Methods. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us too. Please visit frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk to find a list of the publications that Linda has referred to and a reference to a piece of her work that you might also want to read. You can also find other podcasts and reading lists on that page. We hope that you've enjoyed this interview and that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. This is an ongoing project, so if you have an idea for a new podcast, please do get in touch.